hi, I'm Stephen Little. Welcome to episode one of That Was Awesome. This will be a show where I interview people that have been a part of something that I thought was awesome. And whether or not you shared my excitement about that particular thing, I think you'll find the behind the scenes stories interesting. At least I hope so. I'm a graphic designer uh, and I've always enjoyed podcasts and thought it would be a new creative outlet that would be fun to try. Uh, I'm always starting new things, if you know me. Um, A few years back, I started a sports design blog, very creatively called The Sports Design Blog. With some friends, I started a website called Winsipedia that is a a historical college football database. And then about a year and a half ago, I started a clothing brand with a few friends called Live Lo-Fi. So I think it's just time for me to try one more uh, new creative thing and, and a new outlet entirely outside of design. I was listening to a a podcast interview recently with one of my favorite drummers and I thought, man, I'd really love to ask him some questions. And then I thought I'd I'd love to ask a lot of people questions that have been involved in something that I loved. So I thought, why not try it out and see who I can talk to? Uh, If you know me, uh, sports, especially Georgia Tech sports, um, pop punk bands from the early 2000s, TV and movies would probably be my biggest interest, so that's what a lot of the guests on the show will likely be. So a random collection of guests from things that I'm personally interested in, but I think because I am interested in these things, it should make for some good interviews with some good behind-the-scenes stories. As I thought of this idea, the first thing that popped into my head was the old SNL sketch, The Chris Farley Show. Uh, If you remember it, they only did three of them. And Chris Farley would interview people. Paul McCartney was probably the most famous one. And he would be completely nervous and totally fanboy out on them and say things like, hey, Paul, um, do you remember that time you were in the Beatles? And he would say, yeah. And then he would just say, that was awesome. Uh, so I, I likened myself to him, not that I will conduct that terrible of an interview, I hope, but just that I'm essentially being a fanboy here and trying to talk to people that I find interesting and have done really cool stuff. So that's actually where I got the name for the podcast. Uh, That was awesome. Uh, The artwork that I made for it is inspired by the graphics from the the sketch on SNL. And the theme music, um, don't tell anybody, uh, is from there as well. Um, So it's just for fun for me to try this. I hope you enjoy it uh, because if I'm going to interview these people, I may as well record it and share it. So that's what this show is going to be, and we'll just see where it goes, and hopefully I'll have some fun. As I mentioned, there will definitely be some Georgia Tech sports-related guests, uh, just because that's one of my uh, biggest passions and interests, and that's where I'm going to start in episode one. Uh, My first guest will be Sean Bedford, who played football at Georgia Tech from 2006 to 2010, and he's now the color analyst on their radio broadcasts. Sean started his career as a walk-on, and by the end of it, he was the starting center, first-team All-ACC, and won the inaugural Burlesworth Trophy, which is given to the most outstanding player in the country to start their career as a walk-on. In 2010, Sporting News named him one of the 20 smartest athletes for graduating from the number 4 aerospace engineering program in the country. And since then, all he's done is play a year of professional football in Spain, get his law degree from the University of Florida, practice law while broadcasting football games, get married, and have a son. Whew, I'm exhausted just reading all Sean's done. So, uh, Sean, thank you so much for coming on and being the very first guest of That Was Awesome. My pleasure, Stephen. I am truly honored. <laughs> so I met Sean six years ago uh, when he actually reached out to me um, about doing some branding work for Georgia Tech and putting together sort of a presentation 
uh, of some ideas based on a, a blog post I had written about some branding things that they needed to fix and some uniform designs. Um, and so when we first met up that first time, we went to a bar and grabbed a drink and Sean told me all sorts of just really cool stories about, you know, his playing days and stuff like that. And it was just so fun. And that's it, kind of what one of the ideas that led me to start this. So I thought Sean would be an awesome first guest to just come on and kind of recreate that and talk about um, his playing days as well as everything that's kind of happened since then. Um, so, and that presentation, by the way, led to some freelance work I've been doing for them. So I have you to yeah, thank for that. Happy paid off. Yeah, now that worked out well. And I think you're underselling yourself a little bit there because not only was it a blog post, it was probably one of the most liked blog posts that anyone has ever done sort of within the Georgia Tech blogosphere message board realm. So uh, my hat is off to you for taking the initiative on that and putting out a really professional looking presentation that I think really captivated a lot of people who were looking for something to point to. And they said, you know, I don't like our branding. And they said, well, this is what we could and should be doing. And I think we're seeing, you know, a lot of the results of that play out now. Yeah, for sure. They've done a, a really good job, especially from the switch to Adidas. Nothing necessarily that I had anything to do with, but I'm glad they're, they're taking the right steps. So let's get, let's get to you. Um, let's start at the very beginning. Tell me about where you grew up and who's in your family. Okay. So I am the first of three children. Uh, my mom and dad, uh, grew up in the same town in Michigan and decided to get out of Michigan relatively quickly. Um, they moved to first to Arizona and then later to California where I was born. And then shortly after I was born, we moved to Gainesville, Florida, which is where I spent most of my childhood. Although, um, when I was five, my dad got a job in the British Virgin Islands. And so we moved to Tortola and lived there. Um, probably one of the few kids who could say he could sail a boat before he could ride a bike, uh, which is pretty cool. Um, and, you know, growing up in the Caribbean, it's in hindsight, it's really pretty incredible, but I, I think um, it was one of those things I didn't fully appreciate until we left. Uh, then we came back to Gainesville. Um, my two little sisters and I grew up in Gainesville. Um, went to high school at Buholtz High School. I uh, was given an opportunity to walk on to Georgia Tech. I uh, took that opportunity and haven't looked back. Very cool. So did you grow up a big Florida fan? I did. I did. So, um, you know, when we lived in the British Virgin Islands, football wasn't really on my radar at all. Um, my dad would occasionally come back from a business trip to the States, come back with a football and we'd throw it around the yard. And that would be kind of the end of that. Um, just because it was a, it was a, an area where sailing, water sports, soccer and rugby and cricket, I guess I should say, were kind of the headliners in the sports world. Uh, but then when we moved back to Gainesville, suddenly I was plunging right into the midst of you know, one of the epicenters of college football at that time because Florida was coming off a national championship. Danny Werfel just won the Heisman Trophy. Steve Spurrier was funny and gunning it all over the place. And uh, that was my introduction to college football. So that's, um, you know, you really couldn't help but be drawn in. And being a bigger kid, it, there was certainly an appeal to the sport where suddenly I wasn't just having to run around and chase people. People were you know, trying to tackle me and not doing particularly well at it. So um, I think finding that was, was really uh, kind of my, my uh, entry into, um, into organized sports. Awesome. Are they still your second team or have you kind of left it behind a little? I, you know, I, so I went to grad school. I went to law school at the University of Florida. Sure. Um, so to an extent, yeah. Uh, although... It's a very, very, very distant second. Yeah, well, I'd say Florida plus Georgia Tech, you've got plenty of hatred for Georgia between your two uh, <laughs> schools there. 
So I always tell people it's the transition from Florida fan to tech fan is one of the easiest you can possibly make because you get to dislike all the same teams. You know, you still get to hate Florida State, Georgia, Miami. Um, you know, you don't have to love Tennessee or, or Auburn for that matter. So uh, there's a lot of crossover between the two and it's a very natural alliance. in my mind. <laughs> Very cool. So when did you actually start playing football? Oh, so I think I started, well, I started playing organized football in seventh grade. So that would have been, should be better at math than this, but we'll go ahead and call it around 2000, uh, or excuse me, eighth grade. So yeah, 2000, 2001, somewhere in there. And, uh, 2001, 2002, anyway, early 2000s, we're talking like, um, kind of the, the cash money era of, uh, of hip hop, which I think is, is kind of the, the, the point that I can point to and say, that's where, where, uh, organized football started for me. So I played one year of pop Warner and then, um, went into uh, the high school from there. Did you play other sports in high school or just football? So yeah, I played three different sports in high school. Um, there, my other two sports were sort of ancillary to football. Football was number one. And the other two sports kind of came about as training for football in the off season. Sure. Uh, so I did, I was on the, the weightlifting team from my high school. And then also on the, I threw discus with the track team. And, uh, actually discus was probably the sport I was best at. Um, oh, yeah. I was state finalist, uh, two years in a row and school record holder until this past year. So. Oh, wow. That was, uh, that was something I, I sometimes wonder if maybe I should have pursued a little further into college, but uh, never really took those steps. Football kept me busy enough. So I guess to that point, did you have much recruiting attention for either sport or how did you end up walking on, I guess? Well, so I didn't really have um, a whole lot of attention, at least not at the, the major division one level. Uh, certainly not for football, not a whole lot for track. Um, you know, I don't know if a lot of people appreciate this and you working in athletics might have a little bit better feel for this, but uh, the division of scholarships in non-revenue sports is a little bit more complicated. You know, you, you look at football teams and you've got, you've got 85 scholarships and that those go to 85 people and that's the way it works. Uh, it's not quite as simple um, when you get to some of the non-revenue sports and suddenly people are splitting up scholarships. So the recruiting nets aren't cast quite as wide, which is a long way for me to say, no, I wasn't very heavily recruited for track. <laughs> um, I was actually just telling my father-in-law today, uh, I was actually lightly recruited by the Stevens Institute of Technology for wrestling. Um, I've never wrestled in my life, so I don't know where that <laughs> one came from. But that was probably the number two sport I was recruited for uh, behind football. And, and there wasn't a ton of attention to speak of in football. Um, sure. My first call from a coach came actually after my, my spring game, the end of my junior year of high school. And it was from Ivan Jasper at the Naval Academy. He was the quarterback's coach at the time. And I believe still is the quarterback's coach in OC. Um, a tremendous coach who I'm amazed he doesn't have a head coaching job at this point because he's, he's fantastic. Um, but it was so surreal. And uh, I remember telling my parents the next morning, I said, hey, you know, a college football coach called me last night and said they want to re recruit me. And they both looked at me and said, oh, Okay. Um, <laughs> you're joking, right? And, uh, so I was like, yeah, thanks for the support. Guys. Yeah. Very supportive. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, so that was, so Navy was probably the only division one school that actively recruited me. Uh, then I had a couple of Ivy league schools because I had good grades throughout high school. And you know, sure. I, was, I was a good high school football player. I was all state as a senior. Um, but I wasn't, I, I didn't have the, the measurables to really jump off the page and, and capture a lot of people's attention. So sure. uh, no, I was, I was not heavily recruited. That's ironic that Navy reached out to you. I assume <laughs> Paul Johnson was probably there then. He Maybe was, not. Yeah. yeah. And then he ended up being your coach. 
That's right. Coach Johnson was my coach. And so the story with Navy is um, I was actually ready to commit to Navy and was very excited about going to Annapolis. Um, and just as I was getting ready to, to call Coach Jasper to tell him, hey, I've, you know, I'm ready to commit. I've got my congressional recommendation. Let's do this. Um, he coughed and said, hey, you know, I, I hate to break it to you, but the guy who was one spot ahead of you on our board um, committed to us. And so we don't have a really have a spot for you, but you're welcome to come walk on. And uh, for, for a couple of other reasons, I ultimately obviously wound up not going to Annapolis, but um, Coach Johnson couldn't get away from me. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> I think that's why he took the Georgia Tech job. It must have been. He was just always dying to coach me. And, <laughs> and right. that, was, uh, <laughs> that was the opportunity he was looking for. So no, it was cool. Um, but as far as Tech goes, I really have my mom to thank for the for, bringing me to Georgia Tech, and I'm eternally grateful to her for that uh, because at a point in my high school career where I was very tired of applying to colleges, uh, she persuaded me and pressured me to get this one last application in uh, to Georgia Tech right before the automatic consideration deadline for the president's scholarship. Um, so I did because she knew that I wanted to major in engineering and growing up in the Southeast, Georgia Tech is a pretty obvious place to, to aspire to for engineering. So they had the number two aerospace engineering program in the country at the time. And uh, I thought that would be a great opportunity, but I said, wasn't feeling really motivated. It was out of state. The university of Florida was right there in my backyard. Uh, but I got my application in. was notified a couple of weeks later that I was named a semifinalist for the, the president's scholarship and went up to Jacksonville to interview with Dr. Wade Barnes, who's a tech alumnus, a very prominent doctor in Jacksonville and a former tech football player. And lo and behold, his, uh, in, his, um, in his office, one of the football coach's daughters is, uh, is working with him there. And so Buddy Geis, who was the wide receivers coach at the time, his daughter was working for Dr. Barnes. And uh, Dr. Barnes asked me during my interview, you know, I, he said, I see you played football. Would you be interested in potentially walking on a tech? And I said, I would love to do that. That is absolutely 100% what I intend to do. Uh, if I get the scholarship and that's uh, awesome. you know, if, if everything works out. And so I guess he put in a call to the coaching staff. Um, I was fortunate enough to be named a finalist for the scholarship and ultimately wanted receiving the scholarship. And um, he connected me with the coaches. They gave me a chance to walk on and the rest was sort of history from there. That's awesome. Very cool. Um, Serendipitous. Yeah, for sure. So you started at Georgia Tech with Coach Chan Gailey and finished with Paul Johnson. I guess mm -hmm. so I want to know what were the biggest differences between the two <laughs> of them and the program under them? <laughs> oh, wow. Where do we begin? Um, <laughs> so you have to understand the, the backgrounds of both of these guys. And personality-wise, I don't know that you could have found two more opposite people. Um, Coach Gailey, you know, I think the world of both of these men. Um, Coach Gailey is just is a tremendous human being. He's uh, very caring, just very considerate, thoughtful. Um, you know, and, and not to say that Coach Johnson is not these things, but Coach Gailey had a little bit more of a, maybe a, a little softer approach to the game. You know, he, he would be held accountable for what he did, but ultimately he came from an NFL background. And I think there was a certain level of expectation that you were going to handle your business like a professional. And perhaps that's the result of coaching professionals for however many years when he was with the Dallas Cowboys right before then. Sure. Um, and so there was a little bit longer leash. There was a little bit more autonomy given to 
assistant coaches, the position coaches to kind of run their uh, individual units and just a little bit less hands-on from the top. And so he organized everything at a very kind of CEO level. Um, you know, was very supportive, was there for us if we needed him, uh, but he wasn't necessarily going to be micromanaging everything that we did. Um, enter Coach Johnson. Uh, so Coach Johnson comes in and from that first meeting, the first team meeting we had, you could tell everything was going to be different. Um, you know, he was much more of a disciplinarian, came from the Naval Academy, was used to coaching guys who probably not only expected discipline, but in fact, maybe asked for discipline. <laughs> and sure. so I think there was, there was much more of a, I think what the best word would be, but there was much more of a focus on instilling discipline, uh, making sure that every single detail was being handled in the right way, uh, whether that was making sure there were people checking every class that we went to to make sure that people weren't skipping class, uh, making sure that there was maybe a little less emphasis placed on uh, just trusting players to be in shape. And so, um, you know, maybe the, 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 the answer, the example that best exemplifies this was we, in the off season, you're in spring, under both coaches, you have conditioning runs throughout the spring, you know, they're, they're voluntary conditioning runs <laughs> every college has where you are expected to show up and you work out with the strength and training staff, a strength coach um, in the off season. And so you lift weights some days, you run other days, maybe do a combination of the two. Um, so we'd had a pretty pro style program. It's at that point where you were expected to, you know, they were going to keep you in shape, but you were expected if you wanted to go above and beyond, you were welcome to do it, but that wasn't necessarily what the coaching staff was going to do. Well, before the, there was a two-week period right before spring break, right when Coach Johnson first comes in there. And during that two-week period, we have what we call coaches' runs or four quarters. or you know, they, They're known by a couple of different names. Other schools call them mat drills. Uh, mm -hmm. But they're basically, uh, it's a kind of a prolonged fitness test for two weeks prior to spring break. And so every okay. other day, you'd wake up at four in the morning. You have to be on the practice field by five dressed and ready to go to blow the whistle and then you get after it. Um, so, so we had an emergency team meeting called by the strength coach uh, the day before our first coach's run with Coach Johnson. And I've never seen, so Eric Siano, a great strength coach. I believe he's still in the NFL. I know he's with the Buffalo Bills for a long time after he left Tech. But I've never seen him that stressed out before in my life. <laughs> like his eyes are kind of bugging out of their skull a little bit. And he's, he's explaining these things to us and he's, he's walking us through each of the drills we're going to do the next morning so that they don't have to waste time the next day uh, walking us through this. Uh -huh. And like I said, he's, he's clearly a little bit on edge throughout <laughs> this whole walk thing. And he's showing us these drills and they really don't seem that bad. You know, you, you, little whistle around the mill, shuffle left, shuffle right, shuffle back, you know, do an up down and kind of move around. Or maybe, you know, there's one drill in particular where there's four towels placed on the ground and like a 10 by five by five or 10 by 10 square. You have to run and kind of spin around each of the towels on the ground. This, this really doesn't seem that bad. <laughs> He's just, you know, telling us over and over again, do not take this lightly or you will pay for this. <laughs> and so the next morning we go out and we do the first one. And the way this worked was you would do rotation. I think there were six groups and seven rotations, seven different stations. You rotate through the stations. And 
you basically had to go out and they would just have you go as hard as you could for three, four, five minutes per station. I don't remember what the exact time intervals were. Mm-hmm. But then after that, they'd blow the whistle and you'd have to sprint to the next station, uh, kind of break down around the coach, sort of sit in a squat position until they told you, you know, blew the whistle and you moved on to the next station. So there's not really a lot of rest throughout this whole process. <laughs> um, but there's a lot of emphasis too placed on you have to sprint between stations. You never slow up, no sign of weakness, the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So we're thinking we're pretty big and bad. You know, we could do this. This guy's coming from a service academy. He's not used to big time football. Uh, and we quickly found out how wrong we were <laughs> because they blow the whistle. We try to rotate through the first station. We all get sent back to start over and do it again. Oh, God. We try it again, sent back again, tried again, sent back again. I think we repeated the first station three or four times. Oh gosh. Um, and so ideally you would rotate through this twice. There'd be a break in the middle. And then you would do sort of a sudden death round where if everybody did it perfectly on that third rotation, you're done. Mm-hmm. Um, we ran out of time that morning. <laughs> so we started at five and we had to actually stop because guys were going to miss their 9 a.m. classes. Oh my um, gosh. Because it was, it was just brutal. Guys are you know, collapsing on the ground. People's legs are seizing up. Uh, I think we got like three stations in and, and a star player whose name shall not be mentioned uh, <laughs> screams out, I'm going blind. Somebody else is yelling out, I'm not dying for this. Um, so so it suddenly tested the metal of everybody. I think we uh, very yes. quickly, it was made clear. I do, you know, Coach Johnson was going to make sure uh, that we were going to be ready. And he was not going to leave it to chance that maybe we weren't going to take the steps necessary to ensure that we were uh, at a satisfactory fitness level. So, um, <laughs> that I think was a very rude awakening and other, you know, in terms of the scheme and everything, a lot of people like to talk about the offense and obviously there were some, some major changes involved because of that. But, For sure. um, you know, I think the biggest thing was there was an expectation of, of selflessness that you were going to be prepared to sacrifice your body, uh, for the team. Um, you know, it was maybe less about I don't know that, that Coach Gailey was really trying to single out individual players, but you know, when you had someone like Calvin Johnson to Shark Choice and guys like that in the team, sure. there was maybe a little bit more focus on you know, this is the star. We're going to try to get them the ball. We're going to set them up to succeed. Mm-hmm. I think in our offense, obviously, he was trying to get the ball to our best players, but it was more about doing so within the scheme. And the scheme uh, wouldn't provide the opportunity was going to make things work. For sure. So that's, I mean, that's crazy. The workout <laughs> day one, and I'm sure you got a little bit more used to it, but that is a, a drastic change in environment, I'm sure. Um, so as it relates to you, uh, I mean, you went from walk-on to scout team to eventually starter to first team all ACC. So, and a lot changed in that time. So do you think it was a lot of personal development or a lot of it, the new coach or just the, the scheme you mentioned, did that fit you better as an offensive lineman? Cause that's a position where that's a a big change as well. So, or is it kind of all of that? Yeah, I think it was all of that. Um, you know, you never really know when your opportunity is going to come. And that goes for everyone, whether you're on scholarship or a walk on or whatever. And I was fortunate enough to be in a position to capitalize on, on my opportunity when it came. And I think a lot of that was a byproduct of hard work, um, of you know, busting my butt in the weight room, uh, going hard to practice every day. But, um, you know, it, it, it's weird. It could have, could have just as easily have not happened at all. And so I think it was really a testament to just the importance of preparation. Um, 
So I, I started out as a walking on defensive end, which is the position I played in high school. Okay. Uh, I was pretty quickly told I was too short to play defensive end. So I had to move in and play defensive tackle, which meant I had to gain about, um, at the time it was about 30 pounds, but then I got my tonsils out, lost about <laughs> 20 pounds and then had to get about 50 pounds before the start of the next game. Oh my so God. It's a lot of eating. I, uh, it's, so this is the part I want people to appreciate. If we can, if we could just stop and be real for a moment. Sure. Uh, I think a lot of people look at, at football players and linemen in particular and say, man, it would be awesome to be able to eat like those guys. <laughs> and to an extent, that's true because you are never watching your calories uh, except to make sure that you have enough of them. <laughs> right. And so, which, which uh, at first glance, you think, man, this is great. It's all cheesecake and, and <laughs> right. steaks and everything's awesome. Um, if you've ever had a jaw cramp before uh, <laughs> from having to eat for too long, you know that this is not always the case. I can't uh, say that I have. <laughs> yeah, well, count, count yourself lucky. Um, so no, so so after I lost all this weight and then had the game a lot back, I was eating, and I kid you not, this is the Michael Phelps 10,000 calories a day diet, working out two, three times a day, and just slamming back protein shakes. Um, at, at one point, I would get you know two foot-long subs and a box of granola bars and a bunch of bananas would be my lunch. Oh my um, gosh. And so it's just, it's an unfathomable amount of food uh, because you have to eat that much and, and your body's not really, and your body doesn't really want to be a certain weight. It finds ways to make sure that it doesn't go above or beyond that weight. And so I just, I had to eat like crazy. Um, eventually got up to about 275, which is what Coach Gailey had told me I needed to be at uh, to come back to camp the next year. So I maintained my spot on scout team. Unfortunately, wound up injuring my knee. Um, kind of came into the first fall camp under Coach Johnson, kind of thinking, you know, I'm going to be on scout team again. I've had two knee injuries in two years. This doesn't really seem like it's working out. I'm happy to be a part of the team, but this is probably going to be my last season. And then at um, you know, one of the first practices of fall camp, I had a really good practice on scout team and was just blowing up plays left and right. The offense, the, the varsity offense was getting very frustrated with me. And, um, <laughs> At the end of practice, Coach Johnson called me up in front of the team and said, basically said, this is the kind of effort I want to see you guys putting in. Um, you know, I just I want to commend Bedford on the performance today. I thought he came out and did exactly what we were looking for, uh, which under normal circumstances would kind of get a bullseye put in your back as the, you know, sure. the brown noser who's you know, trying to make people look bad. Um, but for whatever reason, that wasn't the case. And so um, the next day of practice, uh, you know, I'm walking to practice. Coach Johnson kind of jogs over to me and says, you know, hey, have you ever played offensive line before? I said, well, you know, I played center my first year of high school, but I kind of swore it off after that. I, I never wanted to be on the O-line again. And he said, well, that's interesting. <laughs> and so he kind of walked away. I didn't really think too much of that. And then we're going through our lines and doing our warm-ups and stretches. And he comes up to me and it's funny. So I'm backpedaling. Uh, 25 yards, just as part of the stretching line. Coach Johnson's walking next to me. He's got the inside of my shoulder pads in one hand and suddenly just kind of yanks me out of the line and says, all right, you're a center now. Uh, come <laughs> over here and let's get some snaps. And so he pulled, I think it was, it was either Tevin, I think it was Tevin Washington. Uh, he pulled aside, see the Tevin or Jabo, but I think it was Tevin and uh, taught me the technique they wanted me to use for snapping. Took a couple snaps, kind of got the hang of it. He sent one of the equipment managers to go get me a white jersey, which was for offensive players. Uh -huh. um, and from that moment on, I was a center. <laughs> that's um, amazing. So that's kind of how that came to be. And then, um, unfortunately, 
sort of phrasing on this is maybe a little weird, but unfortunately, Dan Voss wound up getting hurt against Mississippi State and uh, towards Labrum, which selfishly gave me the opportunity to kind of get some playing time and have a chance to run with the ones um, that spring practice going into my junior year. And I managed to kind of put myself in position to compete for the starting spot that fall, got the starting position, and then 2009 happened. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, so um, so Paul Johnson's first two years were two of Georgia Tech's best in like the last 20, and you guys mm-hmm. won 9 and 11 games. You made an Orange Bowl. Do you think he didn't sustain that success, maybe the 2014 top 10 team aside, because people may say that people got used to his offense or he didn't have Chan Gailey's recruits anymore. What do you think it was about the rest of his tenure that was certainly not bad by any means, but not like those first couple of years on the whole? Well, I think the first couple of years, we had some tremendously talented players and some players who were really diamonds in the rough too. I mean, a lot of people will look at someone like Demarius Thomas and think, man, he must have been a stud coming out of high school. And I mean, I thought he was as a walk-on, you know, here's this guy who's big and statuesque and can run and and just is, is a stud, but I think he was a two-star recruit coming out of high school. Um, But then the following year, we had one of the best recruiting classes in in tech football history. And you have guys like Jonathan Dwyer and Joshua Nesbitt, Morgan Burnett, Derek Morgan, and and just guys who are, you know, you can go through probably five or six guys out of that class who are going to be Roddy Jones for that matter, who are going to be Georgia tech athletics, hall of famers. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had tremendously talented guys, but we also had guys who were willing to buy in, uh, really quickly. And so, you know, anytime you have a talent drop off, I should say talent drop off, but when you lose talent, like we had on that team, when you have guys go pro, uh, maybe before you expected them to most programs outside of the, the Alabamas and Oklahoma's of the world are going to struggle to replace that. And I think there was a little bit of a reloading process. Um, but let's not let's also not forget that the 2011 team started out, I think six and zero, and mm-hmm. was um, you know pulls off a massive upset against Clemson, and then kind of faulted down the stretch. But they were we were always one of those teams that was kind of a little bit on the brink, and so we were if, if everybody stayed healthy and we caught a couple of breaks, we were primed to contend for the ACC Coastal and have a really good season. Um, on the flip side, I think 2010 showed us that if you maybe don't catch those breaks and you have a key player get injured. You're one broken arm away, uh, unfortunately, in my case, from having a season that goes from promising to disastrous pretty quickly. Sure. Um, so I think that was, was a large part of it. But no, I don't think anybody. I, yeah. <laughs> I always laugh at the notion that anybody ever figured out this offense. First off, I know. You know, the flexible and spread offense or spread flexible and spread option offense is the most efficient, most just lethal if run properly offense in college football mm-hmm. because it not only makes the defense account for all 11 players in offense. It's designed to to put the defense in bad spots, but it also physically just destroys their will to win um, <laughs> in a way that no other offense does because you're just getting punched in the mouth over and over and over again. So it's not only from an X's and O's standpoint devastating, but I think physically and emotionally to a defense, it's really tough to go against. Um, for sure. And, and if you ever want somebody who will tell you that it's very difficult to figure out that offense, I'd say ask Bud Foster. Um, <laughs> I was going to say him exactly. Yeah, that last performance uh, against Paul Johnson, I think they tell you pretty quickly that, yeah, it's 
too tough to defend, even if he had 11 years to look at it. So I don't think it was that. Yeah. I think it yeah. was, I think it was a roster uh, thing more than anything. It's just, you know, it, it's tough to get guys to continuously buy in. Um, and, and you're maybe a couple of players away from, from having a good season go off the rails. But no, I don't, I don't think it was the offense. I never thought it was play calling. I just think it was, uh, it's kind of tough to win in college football, as they say. For sure. And I'm with you. And I was going to point to Bud Foster as just one example of there were several <laughs> head coaches and defensive coordinators that faced it every year and struggled almost every year. The only times we really saw it struggle were when you played teams with like a full NFL defensive lineman that everybody right. struggled right. against. So, yeah, it's always right. been kind of a silly, silly argument. Um, all right. Now it is time for the segment. Do you remember that time? So, Sean. Mm, OK. Do you remember that time? You guys were down 16 at Georgia at halftime and then won the third quarter 26 to nothing and won the game, snapping a seven-year losing streak to Georgia in Paul Johnson's first year. Yeah, yeah, I do. That was awesome. (laughs) It it was awesome. Um, I vividly remember watching that game. I became a Georgia Tech fan in Changeli's second year, uh, which was the year I came to Georgia Tech. So all I had known so far was that I was supposed to hate Georgia and that we always lost to them in close, heartbreaking fashion. So, like, just the relief of seeing the end of that game, well, the whole second half was just unbelievable. What, I mean, walk me through that day and, like, the memories you have from that, that game and that day. Oh, sure. So, that, that game is, is one of my favorite games from my time there, and, and I think the result speaks for itself. The way the game played out speaks for itself. But I, I think most tech fans can probably relate to this in a certain way, though maybe not quite to the same extent. When when you pull up the Sanford Stadium and go down to the visitors' locker room, you're descending this tunnel at an incredibly steep grade, and you go down basically to field level from the, the concourse level, which is it's, it's a pretty big drop in, in um, elevation. So you're walking down the steep ramp, and it's all black and red and dark, and you feel like you're descending into the bowels of hell. And <laughs> We get in there, we warm up, and it's just, it, it's, it's not necessarily like a, a bad day outside weather-wise, but it's not really a good day. It's kind of rainy, but it's not like a real downpour. It's just sort of this drizzly gray mess. And, you know, we get out there in the first half, Morgan Burnett returns an interception for a touchdown. And there's a couple of things that sort of start out looking like, okay, you know, we're going to, this is going to, it felt like it was going to play out the way it had the last couple of times where we're competitive and then suddenly we sort of falter a little bit and things just fell apart and they pulled away. That's not what happened. And when we <laughs> came in at halftime, you know, there's these, these hordes of Georgia fans, you know, taunting us, throwing stuff down at us, flicking us off as we're going to the tunnel and just screaming at any kind of profanity you can think of at us. Um, and, you know, I remember walking past this one guy with four or five teeth who's just, you know, uh, <laughs> insulting my, my basic humanity and all sorts of things. And I'm just thinking, I do not want to lose these guys. Um, you know, I, as you pointed out earlier, group of Florida fan, no love lost for Georgia. But now I think this, this moment in Sanford stadium was the moment I really internalized what it meant to hate Georgia. And we get into the, into the locker room, coach Johnson kind of pulls everybody in and says, you know, everybody huddle up. Um, he just said, if you don't think we're winning this game. Walk out that door right now. And um, he kind of disappears in the coach's office, meets with the coaches for a second. They come out, drop some plays and say, this is what we're doing differently. And then right off the bat, 
first play touchdown to start the yep. second half. Uh, and then just an incredible swing. We pulled away in the third quarter. Roddy Jones goes off and is just unstoppable. Joshua Nesbitt is, is the closer that he is. Um, the whole team comes to play, just delivers in a, in a huge way. And I think it was at that moment that a lot of people looked around and said, you know, we knew this guy could coach. We've seen what he can do. We've seen his ex's nose on the sideline, how he's figured things out. This was the moment I think a lot of people really started to believe that, that Coach Johnson was the guy and that he was, he, he fulfilled his promise. He said, we we're going to win this. And we came out and did and um, ripping up with hedges. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I get such a kick out of the fact that they're so protective of their yeah. invasive weed um, <laughs> that, that they, they now actually station security guards by the visitor's tunnel for any time they lose so that people don't rip, rip their precious hedges out. Um, I, yeah, that's, that's another story, but For sure. um, it was just, it was a great feeling. Um, and so I, I was unfortunate that I didn't have another chance to, to live that moment as a player, uh, but it's, there's something special about being Georgia in Athens. Oh, I bet. I bet. It was certainly special as a fan too. Um, aside from that game, what are some of your fondest memories from playing, um, better stories from playing? Oh, so... <laughs> You know, there's some great stories. I'm trying to think of ones that I can, I can share on air. Um, <laughs> you know, cause, cause, well, you, you, and it's not so much that like, there's necessarily bad things that are said, but there's like a, there's kind of a locker room confidentiality rule or oh, there's certain I'm things sure. that don't, don't leave practice, don't leave the locker room. Um, and, and again, sure. not necessarily bad, just sort of private. Um, yep. And, um, but you know, so in 2009, we're playing at Vandy. And that was just a surreal experience because I think Vanderbilt has got to have the least SEC stadium of oh, yeah. any of the SEC stadiums. I think it was Halloween. And so it was just kind of a sort of a weird night. Oh, I was at that and game. Where are you? My wife went to Vanderbilt. So we went up there together as house divided. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it was, it was you, her and a couple dozen <laughs> Vandy fans and, and I the think rest so. of the tech fans. Yeah. Yep. Uh, but no, it was, it was fun. Um, it was the, one of the politest, crowds i think i've ever been around <laughs> and if you've ever been to and, and you obviously have but for anybody listening who's been to the stadium at vanderbilt this the um the wall between the field and the seats is it's there's not really like a gap there so we, there's a bench that's actually built in or at least there was a bench built into the wall that it sort of separates fans from the playing surface and so we were sitting up against that bench in between plays and there's a couple of Vandy fans in the front row. We're just sort of leaning over the railing, talking to us. And we're just having polite conversations in between, <laughs> in between drives. And you don't really get that a whole lot of other places. You know, a little different than the 14th guy at Georgia. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A little different than that guy, a little different than Virginia Tech or Clemson or any of those. <laughs> and, and the other environment's fun too. Don't get me wrong. But it was just such an odd experience to be sitting there. And you've got these, these perfectly pleasant, very nice Vanderbilt fans kind of swapping stories with you. And this is not, to, and maybe they were trying to get our heads out of the game, but they didn't really <laughs> succeed. Right. That was just kind of a, a surreal experience. Um, but in that game, it was one of those other moments of, of Coach Johnson just being Coach Johnson. And he sort of pulled the offense together after a drive. He says, all right, you guys want to score a touchdown on this next play? <laughs> we're kind of like, yeah, obviously we want to score a touchdown on the next play. So he kind of bends over in the dirt. And this is like the, the proverbial football coach drawing up plays in the dirt. And he gets out, pulls out this whiteboard, 
gets his dry erase markers out and it draws up a formation says, okay, this is a play. We're going to run a play action pass off the counter option. Uh, we're going to send the A back and jetting up here. The safety is going to cheat up. He's going to be wide open. Just look for him. Six points the easy way. So we run it and Vanderbilt could not hit bit harder on the stake. And Henry <laughs> Peoples comes wide open behind the safety just as Coach Johnson had drawn it up. Josh Nesbitt dumps it over the top. Emory catches it. There's nobody within probably 20 yards of him when he catches this. So he just completely fooled the defense. Problem was, Embry caught the ball at maybe like R40 with nobody between him and the goal line. Uh-huh. And so he takes off running and starts to kind of slow down. And he's sort of slowing down, kind of easing his way. And one of the Vanderbilt defenders did not get the memo that this is supposed to be an easy touchdown. So he comes <laughs> flying in after Embry. Embry looks up at the Jumbotron, sees oh, a defender man. chasing him, and then picks his speed back up and touches the end zone. So I always kind of got a kick out of that. But That's great. Um, so yeah, that, that was, play that was, was a fun experience. Like not something you guys had practiced at all, or I guess it used elements you've practiced and you just kind of mashed them together to make a play? Sort of. So we knew that the, the running play, the play action was based off of was going to be effective, and we had a lot of success running it. So this was something we would get from time to time, especially when you have a run-heavy offense like that is the defense has to sell out one way or another to try to, to, to compensate for that. And so this counter option we've been running had been very effective. You know, we pull a guard out, get him in the front, kind of get the defense going one way, hit him the other way. And so we, we had a lot of success with that. And so Vanderbilt started cheating their safety down and rolling their other safety over, um, but they hadn't really accounted for the possibility of play-action pass. So we put the, the pass play in on the fly. Um, okay. Fortunately, the, protect, you know, the offensive lines, pass protection, was basically like a running play, uh, except that obviously we couldn't go down the field and so the quarterback just kind of carried out his fake, set mm-hmm. his foot, and then we just had a, a go route going right up the seam and just worked out that way. That's great. So it is improvised, but not completely like yeah. drawn from scratch. Yeah, totally. So you majored in aerospace engineering at one of the mm-hmm. top engineering schools and especially aerospace engineering schools in the country. What what is your typical day or even just season like with that difficult of an academic experience? Plus playing for a football team that for half your career, especially the part you were playing in was a top 25 football team as well. So it was tough. Um, you know, I think any engineering student in tech can tell you that it's, it's a very demanding and rigorous academic experience. Um, I didn't sleep a lot. Uh, I, I, Took a lot of caffeine. I think I started drinking coffee at about that point. And um, yeah, it was uh, it was a lot to get in. Um, I don't really know if there's a whole lot of other ways to say that. But, you know, I typically get up, depending on the day, if I had morning lifts, somewhere between five and six. Um, you know, work till, uh, work out till eight, shower, clean up, go to class, go to class till noon eat lunch for however long it took me to cram as many calories as I had to, um, you know, and that's the other thing about, you know, being in that position where you haven't eat all the time is that you have to eat constantly, uh, so that you're not just like completely stuck from a massive meal. Um, so, you know, I might have two or three breakfasts, two lunches, you know, and then a big dinner at the end. But so then I, you know, go back to class after lunch, go to film, um, have team meetings, go to practice, get out, probably eat dinner and be done with dinner around eight and go back to the dorm, study, uh, go to sleep sometime around midnight, one o'clock, and then just kind of rinse and repeat. Um, 
Yeah, it was it was a lot. Uh, <laughs> as I get got kind of more senior in some of my uh, aerospace classes, some of the classes became very specifically demanding, and so you get up into aeroelasticity and thermodynamics and um, controls lab and things like that, and you just you have so much work to do that you just have to create time to do it in, um, which can be kind of tough. And uh, before the ACC championship game in 2009, I had a fine, or a senior design project that was due. And we were basically taking the, the Gal 9 Gatlin cannon off of an A-10 and trying to find a way to put it into a sort of low observable stealth type, you know, not fighter jet, but sort of attack jet um, as a hypothetical replacement for the A-10, which... This day has not does. been effectively replaced. Yeah, this is a very <laughs> standard project. Um, right. And so, so I was just working around this around the clock the, the week of. And so anytime I wasn't at practice or in meetings, meeting, I was in the, I was in the, the computer labs at the, uh, at the aerospace, at the Guggenheim College, just trying to get this project done. And so I pulled an all-nighter the night before we left um, for Tampa for that championship game turned in my, actually, I think I may have handed off to one of my classmates to turn in for me because I wasn't going to be able to actually physically make it to the, to the class and back in time to make the bus. Um, but anyway, it turned in my paper, got on the bus, promptly fell asleep. And then, uh, I think that was probably the earliest I ever went to bed in college was <laughs> maybe eight o'clock that night, went to sleep, passed out and then, uh, played Clemson the next day. <laughs> Yeah, that's, yeah, that's amazing. Um, I was at that game as well. Uh, another really fun game. And I attended the Orange Bowl that you guys eventually played <laughs> in after winning that game, which was, I'm sure you remember, like, I haven't checked, but probably it's still the coldest day in Miami in the last 20 years. It was freezing. Yeah, definitely the coldest Orange Bowl on record. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Um, so, and, and, and I'll, I'll let you finish your, uh, you know, I'll, I'll do the, the Kanye West thing here. I'll let you finish in a second, Stephen, but... <laughs> Um, I had a, my whole family's from Michigan. Um, and so I come from a big Irish Catholic family. I had tons of cousins and a bunch of my cousins came down uh, for that orange bowl game, thinking they were going to escape the cold of Michigan, uh, <laughs> for warm, sunny beaches in Miami as, as many of these Iowa fans probably were at the same time too. And yeah. my cousin Louie came down and he's, he's, he was and is a bodybuilder. And so he was very oh, wow. you know, excited to be down in Miami, have a chance to, <laughs> to get out in the sun a little bit, show off his work. And he decided that he was, you know, through a combination of machismo and, and I don't know, narcissism, decided that he was going to uh, go shirtless for the Orange Bowl in the hopes of being on TV. <laughs> I think he got to the tailgate and quickly realized that was a terrible idea. And so he... Um, I think wound up borrowing like three or four blankets from some girls that were uh, <laughs> seated next to him. So these poor girls are out there without these blankets they brought specifically for this purpose. Just so my cousin, you know, who's, who's a running back on his college team. So he's not a small guy. He's sitting over there huddled uh, in the stands freezing, but um, yeah, it was cold. Yeah. It was cold. <laughs> it was cold. I, I think I was in Miami for fewer than 24 hours, like basically flew down, went to the game, woke up, flew home. And I grew up in Iowa, a big Iowa State fan. So grew up hating Iowa the way that I now hate Georgia. I don't have hatred for them anymore, really. But just, yeah, to go see them, like, all right, we're going to beat my old rival. And, like, it's going to be in Miami and fun. And it was freezing. And we lost. And we didn't score many points. And then I just flew home sad and went to work at, like, the beginning of the next day. Was... Yeah, the, the 2014 Orange Bowl was a lot more fun to go to. Personally. Yeah, for sure. My son was born the day of the 2014 Orange Bowl. So I watched it in the hospital 
with like a seven hour old or something like that. It was great. <laughs> hey, hey, Stephen, can I say something? Yes. That's awesome. <laughs> you pulled my own segment right back out on me and I didn't even see it coming. We might have to make that a recurring thing where the guest has to sneak one in as well. <laughs> I like that. But yes, it was awesome. That was a much better orange bowl than the, uh, than the 2009 one. So speaking of the 2009 season, I mean, everything we've talked about has been really fun and happy and exciting. I'm curious, the Georgia game that year, uh, we were number seven at home. Uh-huh. They, they were yeah. unranked. It was the only time I just looked this up. It's sad, but it's the only time we were favored against them in 18 years. And it was nine and a half points. It was not even a small uh, spread. And we let it slip away. How much did mm-hmm. that hurt? Especially how close we ended up coming and coming back and almost getting them in the end. It really hurt. Uh, <laughs> and for obvious reason, anytime you lose to a rival, um, it, it really, really stings. And I think in this case, it did feel like we let them off the hook a little bit. Um, it was always going to be, I think, a tough matchup for us because Georgia had Georgia had underachieved, I think, that season. They were not – the previous year, they were preseason number one. They had a ton of talent. They had number one overall pick and all that. Um, so I think they were probably destined – or they were going to take a step back, but they were still loaded at a lot of positions with a lot of quality depth. Um, and some massive guys. I remember walking out there and seeing their two defensive tackles and just kind of looking up at one of them. I think he was like 6'6", 340. I'm thinking, Man, I'm down here at 6'1", probably maybe 270 at that point in the season thinking, all right, here we go. Let's, uh, let's see what we can do with this. And, um, but no, it, it stung because it felt like we kind of let him get away. Um, For sure. I think, I think everyone in that offense, probably everyone on the team, um, when we were mounting that that late drive to to, to take the lead back and win, um, I think we all felt convinced that once again we were going to pull a rabbit out of the hat and we were going to get the job done. And uh, to be part of the the group that just didn't make that happen, I think that was really disappointing. And I just remember walking out the field and just kind of looking around at uh, some of my friends and family uh, who were either on the field or in the stands, thinking just like. I was speechless. Um, yeah. It just hurts. So it's just like getting punched in the gut. Yeah, um, I'm sure. We thought this was, this was the year that we were going to make it two in a row. This was the year that we were going to, um, you know, not just beat them, but then take that in, take that momentum, build off that, win the ACC championship, and then have an outside chances of maybe even making the national title game at that point, if things broke the right way. Um, we sort of removed ourselves from that, uh, from, from that possibility. And yeah, it, it was not fun. So on a more positive note, uh, your senior year, you did win the first ever Burlesworth trophy for being the most outstanding player to start your career as a walk on. Uh, first I'd say that's pretty good timing for that award coming into existence (laughs) your senior year. Yeah. Yeah, no, I was, uh, I was not disappointed that they decided to start awarding that that year. Yeah. So was that ceremony? I see that now it's in Arkansas. Was that the case Mm -hmm. the first year too? And you went, went there to receive that? Yeah. So it's, it's in Springdale, Arkansas. And, um, uh, the, the Rotary Club of Springdale hosted every year and they do a tremendous job and they've been gracious enough to invite me back to speak at, at really, uh, I think every award ceremony since then, uh, I haven't always been able to attend because it coincided with law school finals and I was over in Spain for a while, which uh, prevented me from actually, no, no, I think I made it to Spain because that was the year that I got it. Um, but no, it's just a wonderful people. Um, it's a wonderful story. Uh, if you, 
have a chance to learn about Brandon Burlesworth and who he was and what he stood for. Just an incredible person, uh, incredible football story. Uh, his biography, uh, Greater, is now on Netflix. So if you're sitting in uh, self or social isolation right now and you're looking for something <laughs> yeah. to do, check that out. It's uh, it's a really cool, um, it's a really cool movie. Um, I know everybody in it, which is also you know, personally uh, I really enjoy. But um, you know, I meet with uh, Marty and Vicky Burlesworth a couple times a year. Talk to them. Uh, they just appointed me to the selection committee this year. So it's a great group to stay in touch with, but they do an awesome job of making guys who have been sort of underappreciated their whole careers really feel like they're, they're getting their due. And what's so cool about it is that, you know, I, I think a lot of people think Rudy, when they think of walk-ons, it's sort of the default that they go to, right. but it's so cool to go to this. And every year it's, it's like they somehow managed to improve upon what the previous year's class has done. And you see guys who, just have incredible stories to tell. And you could make a movie about any one of these guys. And so, um, I, 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 the list is, is so impressive when you stop and look at the guys like Matt McGloin, um, Justin Hardy, uh, Baker Mayfield. Uh, obviously mm-hmm. he, he turned out to be pretty good. He <laughs> pretty twice. good. Yeah. yeah, yeah not, not too bad. Um, yeah. and so just awesome guys and, and awesome people. And that's one of the really fun parts is that when, um, when I go out there every year and, and now the, the Bloodsports have been nice enough to invite my family along. And so my son, Bo got to go to his first um, presentation this year and he got special recognition. My wife, Jennifer <laughs> got recognized, which is very cool, but they all get to know these guys too. And so, um, you know, for my wife to be able to uh, point the TV on Sundays when she's talking to them, like, Oh yeah, that's Baker. I know him. Um, that, that's pretty cool. Um, that's so, awesome. yeah, I've, I've been very blessed to be uh, involved with Bloodsports and uh, the Bloodsports trophy. That's very cool. So you mentioned you're on the selection committee. How does that selection process for this award work? Um, so we school send in their nominations and we analyze everybody's basically everybody's um, resume as it were, but their, their credentials and look at their statistics, their performance throughout the season. I try to go through and watch as much tape as I can um, to really see what each of these guys is doing and see not only, you know, it's one thing to have, statistics that are through the roof, but it's also uh, kind of a balancing act just because college football is such a wide landscape with with such varying levels of competition, um, such varying styles that you have to look and see how, what these guys are going against, who are they competing against? um, What do they mean to their team? What are they being asked to do? And, um, and really it's, it's kind of a a neat little tour around college football that I wouldn't otherwise get. So I, I really enjoy sitting down and going through the list and seeing what each of these guys brings to the table, seeing what each of the schools writes about them. And, um, it's just really cool to see what they mean with their teammates. That's awesome. Uh, so I do want to talk about Spain, like you mentioned in a second, but, mm-hmm. uh, coming out of your senior year, were you getting much draft attention? Were you p- pursuing <laughs> a shot at the NFL? Were you not even considering it? Uh, you know, I, I had a couple of agents who reached out to me about trying to test the waters and, and seeing what that might be. And I was just sort of at a point, I think after a very frustrating 2010 season that, you know, I was, I think I was ready for something a little different. Um, and I, the NFL didn't sound all that appealing to me. I, to be clear, teams were not beating down my door to, to bring <laughs> right. on a, a 280 pound, 61 center <laughs> from, uh, from a, what was perceived to be kind of a, a college system. Um, Although, you know, I think Shaq Mason has shown that offensive linemen from that system can go on to have quite a bit of success in the NFL. For sure. Uh, but I, I don't think that Shaq Mason and I were back from quite the same cloth. So I was 
mentally <laughs> prepared, I think, to move on to the next phase of my life. And so I was planning to go to law school that fall. I didn't really know where yet. Um, I figured I would take this opportunity to go play overseas, have some fun, see the world a little bit, and then uh, kind of make my decision about law school over there. And uh, one of the best decisions I ever made. I had more fun than I, I think I've ever had in my life. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that shows me more than all this other stuff, how smart you are, that you, you <laughs> used football as an opportunity to go live in Madrid and spend some time away before getting right back into difficult school again. So how did the Spain opportunity come about and, and what was that like? So, so Spain, I think I, I've got a couple of other offensive linemen to thank for this. And I, I think I probably get too much credit for this, but Matt Rhodes and Dan Voss are the real heroes here. Um, they're the ones <laughs> who sort of pioneered this path. And so Matt and Dan had both gone and, and Matt Rhodes and, and Dan Voss for anybody who's not familiar were offensive linemen at tech who were a couple of years ahead of me. Uh, Dan was one season ahead of me, also played center. Uh, Matt was an offensive guard who played, I think his last season was 2007 or 2008, 2007, I think. Uh, and they both went to play in France and uh, had these wonderful experiences in Southern France and came back to Tonga and they said it was incredible. You should absolutely do it. It's just a blast to be playing football where everyone in there or everybody there is is committed to the game. They love playing. This is what they want to be doing. This is not a means to an end. It's just go out and have fun and get to meet some really cool people, get to see some things that you'll never see anywhere else in the world and uh, take it as an opportunity, not for a paid vacation necessarily, but something not too far removed from paid vacation. <laughs> um, and so I followed their lead and um, wanted to improve my Spanish a little bit. Um, went to or Posted on this, basically created a profile on this website called Europlayers. I was contacted by some folks in Madrid, and um, we kind of negotiated a contract through, through Google Translate and um, <laughs> went over. And I think within, so I landed on Wednesday, and we had our first game on Saturday. So it was a very <laughs> quick turnaround in terms of learning the playbook. Uh, but it was fun. We um, played for Osos Rivas, which is uh -huh. the... Um, you know, great organization been around the uh, Liga Nacional de Football Americano for um, a couple decades at that point. It's just really cool because all of these guys love football. They mm -hmm. eat, sleep, breathe football, except when Real Madrid and Barcelona are playing, <laughs> in which case you're lucky to get 10 guys to practice that day. That's like hilarious. Just don't, if, if El Clasico is going on, people just don't show up for practice. Uh, but otherwise, so uh, you know, these guys pay their own way. Um, the Spanish players are, are very committed by their, all their own equipment. Like this is very much like their thing. They're, they're very into it. Um, very committed to it. Follow college and pro football religiously. Um, and so the rules of the league are set up where you can only have three Americans and uh, American is sort of loosely defined to include people from the U S Canadians and Mexicans. And if you didn't know, uh, Mexico and Canada both have college football leagues that are actually pretty good. Oh, well. Um, I think most people probably don't know that, but they're actually pretty good. <laughs> um, so we played against teams from uh, a couple of teams from Barcelona, uh, another team from outside of Madrid, a team from Valencia. And um, it's just really cool. Got to travel all over Spain, um, hang out with some really cool guys. Uh, my roommates were uh, an English guy who actually wound up being in my wedding. Um, we oh, wow. had to be such good friends, a Danish guy who 
Um, you know, I still talk with occasionally. Um, our quarterback was was an American expat who'd been kind of hanging out in the European leagues for a while, but it's just sort of like a, kind of a crazy uncle to us, and we got to hang out with him all the time. But uh, made some really awesome friends over in Spain, and um, would do it again in a heartbeat if uh, you know if life didn't proceed to get more complicated and expensive as, as life goes on. <laughs> sure, that tends to happen. So, how did you guys communicate most of the time? Was it in Spanish because there were so many Spanish players? Well, yeah, it was in Spanish. Mm-hmm. Um, fortunately, there were a number of players on the team who were proficient in English. Um, a couple mm-hmm. guys were fluent, so they would sort of help us out and help us get situated. With kind of drive up sometimes, see what we were up to that day and take us out to, you know, go see what was going on in Madrid, um, take us to whatever kind of cultural festival was going on or take us out to eat or take us to their parents' houses and feed us. And, um, one of the really fun things was uh, two of our teammates worked at um, one of the local schools in the cafeteria. And so they, they cooked meals for all the kids. But then after all the kids ate, part of our contract was for lunch every day, we got to roll up and basically eat whatever was left from the, the school lunch that day. <laughs> and and it probably doesn't sound super appealing, but it's really good. And so, um, you know, best tortilla espanol I've ever had. And uh, it was the, the, these kids eat incredibly well. Um, so if you've ever in your life been worried that Spanish elementary school children are not getting <laughs> the proper nutrition they, they need, uh, rest assured they're doing fine. Uh, so that was great. Um, else did we have going on it's kind of a little bit well oh so you know you asked how do we communicate well in addition to being the starting center um and then a linebacker slash defensive tackle slash defensive end on defense <laughs> I, I was also the offensive and defensive line coach and the um uh strength and conditioning coordinator and uh <laughs> assistant coach for the junior team and so oh wow i got to a point where i was actually i could conduct a full football practice in spanish so mission accomplished as far as improving Spanish in one very specific area. Yes. Yes. That's amazing. Uh, what's the talent level like in that league? So it's, it's mixed. Um, and it's really interesting because you get guys uh, as young as, you know, I think we would have one or two guys from the junior team who might've played up. And so guys who were 16 to 18 years old, um, were, you know, good high school players sort of of that caliber. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you know, we had an offensive lineman who was just kind of a salty, savvy old vet who I think was in his early 40s. But still <laughs> just loved playing the game. Um, you know, maybe had lost a step, but what he'd lost in, in you know, foot speed, he'd made up for in prowess and, and just sort of savvy and knowing exactly what guys were going to do, what he could get away with. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, you know, we had guys who had uh, been on NFL rosters um, oh, wow. who uh, had gotten cut or who had um, you know, not make the team out of training camp who would then come over and join. So there was a, a team in, in uh, Barcelona that had a couple of players like that. Now, a couple of guys, uh, there's a quarterback who played at Syracuse. Um, the Pioneers, they helped me to let out of <laughs> Barcelona, had a couple of players from Yale. You know, it was just sort of, it was a mixed bag. And so you never really knew what you were going to get. But <laughs> played on an 80-yard field because all they had were soccer fields. And so none of them were actually long enough. Um <laughs> Which, as an offensive one, is great. Yeah. Uh, but no, it was it was an awesome experience. That's great. If anybody, if anybody listens to this, is considering playing semi-professional football in Spain, do it. <laughs> Good to know. Good to know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so 
you went from a very difficult aerospace engineering program to law school. At what point did you decide law was what you wanted to do? And how did you kind of make that very long jump? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it doesn't seem like there's a real logical connection there. But the particular kind of law I practice is um, maybe makes a little bit more sense. Uh, so I'm, I'm a patent lawyer. Uh, I practice intellectual property litigation. And typically the way it's sort of conceived is that to sit for what we call the patent bar, which is actually the U.S. Patent Trademark Office Registration Exam, uh, you have to complete a certain amount of coursework or have a degree in certain hard sciences or engineering backgrounds. And so a lot of patent lawyers that you'll come across uh, have engineering degrees. And actually within the intellectual property community in Atlanta in particular, uh, there's Georgia Tech folks everywhere. Um, so a lot of former tech engineers there. So it, it maybe made a little bit more sense from that standpoint. But yeah, I, I certainly understand this is not the path that most AE grads follow. Uh, and honestly, the point at which it, it kind of clicked for me that this is something I might want to do was in my, with my first semester of tech in an English lit class of all things. Um, we were reading Frankenstein. And at the end of this unit, we had sort of a mock trial for Dr. Frankenstein. And I got to go up and be his defense attorney. <laughs> I loved every second of it. It was awesome. <laughs> um, and so getting up there and just kind of putting on this sort of lighthearted trial, it was just as much fun as any class project I'd ever done. And so that kind of planted the seed. And then I was talking to a, uh, a mentor of mine. I had a tech and mentioned that you know, I was thinking about maybe getting an MBA or something further on down the road. Was, well, have you ever looked into getting a JD? Um, because you, you, know, you can go be a patent lawyer and there's sort of this kind of barrier to entry by virtue of this sort of technical education requirement. You know, maybe this is something that you'd be interested in. So I looked a little bit more into it, picked up a pre-law minor while I was a tech, um, did really well in all my pre-law classes, really loved it. And um, took the LSAT sort of with the idea that thought it was what I wanted to do, but I wasn't entirely sure. And, um, you know, depending on how I scored and where I got in, I could kind of make the decision from there. But I got into the University of Florida, which is where I wanted to go. Um, it was the school that made the most financial sense for me. And so uh, after I got the acceptance letter, it was kind of, let's go with that. And uh, it's worked out really well. Awesome. So in addition to being an attorney, uh, You've been doing color commentary for how many seasons now? Oh, shoot. Uh, I guess 2015 was my first season. So it's, assuming we have a season this year, <laughs> yeah. uh, this will be my, my sixth season. Okay, wow. Um, so how did that come about? I know you had been doing some like pregame stuff with them. Is that just kind of what naturally led to that when a, there was an opening when Roddy left, basically? Sort of. So Dean Bucking, who was the sports information director at Tech, um, basically the whole time I was there, uh, he gave, I think this was my second year of law school. He reached out to me and said, Hey Sean, um, the guy who's been doing our pregame show uh, for our radio broadcast has moved off to California. He's pursuing other things. And we're looking for a former student athlete who we thought was a good interview during his time here. Um, is this something you might potentially be interested in? Said, yeah, I'd, I'd absolutely be interested in this. And so, uh, I started on the pregame show that year and uh, just an incredible credit to, um, to everybody there for sticking with me because the first couple of broadcasts kind of rough. <laughs> um, 
but we got through it and uh, it's only gone up from there. And so I did a couple of years of doing, um, doing the pregame show, kind of filling in, doing some sideline reporting from time to time. And then I was actually on my honeymoon. We were uh, kind of here on a bus going through rural Guatemala and we passed through this, this one little town that I guess there was just some stray Wi-Fi signal that I managed to pick up. And so I text from Brandon Gunn, who was the voice of Jax at the time, saying, hey, Roddy has decided to leave to go do TV. Would you be interested in auditioning for the color job? I said, absolutely. Hit send. Message sent. I lost Wi-Fi. And <laughs> it took me a couple of days to find out what was happening after that. Oh, wow. Um, but so we uh, had a little audition called the pre-recorded part of the, the previous game. Um, just kind of jumped in and acted like I was doing color commentary for that. They liked me enough and brought me on. It's been uh, an incredibly fun way to stay involved with the program uh, and to be a part of some really special moments of tech football history. That's awesome. And and you're great at it. And I imagine with the amount of research you probably have to do, you're probably busier now between (laughs) practicing law, doing that and having a family than you were (laughs) majoring in aerospace and playing football. It's close. Um, <laughs> I'll give a slight edge to, I think tech still probably has the edge, but um, <laughs> not by a whole lot. No, it, it keeps me busy in the fall. And, and let me just say, my wife is a saint that she allows me to do this. And because um, it's, it's not easy on her because uh, she is basically a single parent on weekends in the fall, but she, um, she does an awesome job and she's been very adamant that she wants me to keep doing this because uh, she knows how much fun I have. With her. That's great. Well, I won't take too much more of your time either. Um, I am curious, uh, since you played for him, what were your thoughts on Paul Johnson retiring? And and then I guess after that, Georgia Tech deciding to move away from his option offense. Well, you know, I was I was really happy for Coach Johnson. Um, you know, I think he had wanted to spend more time with his family. Uh, I think he was, you know, a lot of people, and I, I, I will admit that I do read message boards and Twitter and all the speculation stuff and really get a kick out of it. Um, you know, I think there are a lot of people who are kind of trying to read in things that, that weren't there. Um, I, I honestly think coach just kind of got to a point in his career where he said, you know, this, I'm not having as much, this isn't as fun to me, or this isn't maybe motivating me the way that it used to. And you know, it's time to step aside and, and take care of some of the other things in my life. And I think he took advantage of that. And I think he had a Hall of Fame career and I'm, I'm glad to see that he's being recognized for what he's done. Um, I will tell you that if he ever gets back into coaching, he's going to absolutely destroy some teams. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, a really fun story I heard about him um, consulting with some of uh, his former players who have gone and become high school coaches, consulting with some of them and, and helping them, um, giving them some tips leading up to some games that have led to some incredible blowout scores. But he's uh, he's a football genius. And, um, you know, I'm glad that he's having a chance to, spend time with his family uh, to enjoy some free time, do some traveling and uh, thrilled for him. Um, I think coach Collins is doing a great job at tech. Um, I think he's obviously decided to, to shift the program in a very different direction, but um, he's assembled a really interesting cast of coaches. Um, really, really qualified coaches who all have tech connections or, or most of whom have tech connections. And um, he's, it's such a, you know, and I don't even know if, if 180 degree shift is maybe even the right term here because it's, it's not necessarily going the opposite direction because they're doing some of the same things. And, and if you actually look at what Tech ran offensively this year, there are a lot of option concepts in there. I think a lot of people mm-hmm. were kind of taking the, 
you know, trying to paint this as like Brian Van Gorder coming into Georgia Southern and saying there is no option. Right. The first, the first touchdown of the Jeff Collins arrow was scored on a speed option against Clemson. <laughs> um, you know, th- there was a lot of, of zone read and a lot of different things that were done to take advantage of the personnel. And I think, um, I think this coaching staff has, has kind of seen what they have there because there's undeniable talent in that part of the game. Um, but it's, it's a very innovative group. It's just trying all sorts of new and different and exciting things. And um, when you hang out with the team at the hotel before a game, uh, which we have the luxury of doing part of the radio crew, you know, we fly with the team, we're around the team, we get to see what they're doing. Um, they're just, they're having so much fun constantly, but there's just such a high energy level all the time. It's not really like anything I've ever seen. It's, it's almost like, it's not like, this is why I say, I don't know that it's fair to say it's a 183 shift. It's almost like it's, it's not even the same thing. Like it's mm-hmm. just, it's just so radically different in, in so many different aspects of what's being done. So I think it's, it's really innovative and uh, I'm curious to see how things play out um, this year. I think there's a lot of exciting young players. I think the schedule, uh, again, assuming we have a football season this year, yeah. which, you know, God forbid that doesn't happen, but fingers crossed it does. And obviously we have to make sure everyone is safe first and foremost. Um, it's a really challenging schedule. But I think there's some really, this is a team that has continued to grow and improve. And I think there's, uh, I really hope this season does happen because I want to see what Tech can do. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I'm certainly excited about the future as well. Um, well, Sean, thank you so much for taking the time to do this, for being our first guest. Um, this is a lot of fun for me. Hopefully uh, it's fun for people to listen to as well. Um, where can people find you online and follow you? <laughs> Well, I, first of all, thank you for having me on, Stephen. It's been a lot of fun, and uh, it's great talking tech football and, and reminiscing on, on uh, my glory days, personally, <laughs> uh, but also just, just talking about tech football. It's been too long, and uh, yeah, it's nice sure. to kind of take our minds off of everything that's going on uh, outside right now. Um, but yeah, no, uh, I don't have a real active social media presence. I need to be better about that. Um, and as soon as Lent is over, I think uh, that'll probably pick up a little bit. <laughs> uh, but you can find me on Twitter at, at Sean Bedford 79. And that's about it. Um, so uh, you'll occasionally hear me on, on different radio broadcasts and um, talk radio around the Atlanta area and the Savannah area. And uh, other than that, uh, if you want to see some awesome retweets and the occasional clip, <laughs> follow me at Sean Bedford 79. <laughs> Perfect. Well, everybody go give Sean a follow. Definitely tune in and listen to the radio broadcasts. And uh, thank you again, Sean. This is a lot of fun. My pleasure. Thanks very much for having me, Stephen, and, uh, and be well. All right. You too. All right. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the first episode. I certainly enjoyed doing it. I'll add links to some of the things Sean and I talked about in the show notes. You can find those in whatever app you use to listen to podcasts or at thatwasawesomepodcast.com. I've got some music guests and some more Georgia Tech sports guests lined up for the future. I don't expect most interviews to be as long as this one was. Sean and I had a lot to talk about. Um, But please uh, subscribe to the show and rate the show in Apple Podcast app or in iTunes. That's how you can help me out. Uh, Be sure to follow the show on Twitter and Instagram, both at TWAwesomePod. Uh, huge thanks to Adam Martin, host of the Makers of Sport podcast, which was the first podcast I ever listened to. He gave me some pointers on how to how to do this. Uh, thank you to Chris Marshall for some much needed audio help. And to a couple people I've never met, Mike Russell, whose video tutorials I stumbled upon on how to 
record and edit audio, Dan Benjamin for his podcast method podcast, um, and the numerous blogs that I read on trying to figure out how to pull this off. And of course, thank you to Sean Bedford for being my first guest. And thank you for listening. Thank you.